Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. Here's your host, Jacob Wells. All right. Welcome to Latte with the Lawyer. I'm your host, Jacob Wells, and today I'm really excited because we have a great episode for you. We're going to be talking with Rebecca Horton about how she started out in the government side of law and then transitioned to work for uh, Paul Sinelli, where she works with intellectual property uh, and technology litigation. So here's our guest, Rebecca Horton. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jacob. I'm, I'm excited. I mean, it's always an easier topic to talk about you know, your own career journey yeah. um, to the, you know, where I am at this point. So I'm happy to share that and maybe it'll be some interesting tidbits for people to hear about. Great. Well, thanks again for uh, spending some of your time with us today. Um, I have to ask you before we get into the episode, since our show is called Latte with the Lawyer, um, what is your morning drink of choice? What gets you ready for your busy day ahead? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, anything of the caffeine variety. <laughs> I have come to realize that um, espresso is probably the, you know, the quickest thing to do the job. And so probably an Americano is going to be mm. the, the direction I go. And then, um, but, I, you know, I would be misleading if I said it's just one Americano to start the morning. It's usually, you know, <laughs> one or two and then, yeah. you know, maybe an afternoon one as well. No, no, no. I, I hear you. I was, I had a Americano phase for a bit and uh, yeah, I feel like it's hard to uh, stay with just one drink. You got to switch it up a bit. So definitely, mm -hmm. definitely hear that. Um, so let's take it all the way back to when you worked in the government side of things. And I know you did some trials back then. So what was that like? And how did you get interested uh, in law in the first place? Sure. I mean, that part goes way back to a point that I probably can't even pinpoint. Um, at a really young age, I must have seen a TV show or something, but I just kind of decided that I was going to be a trial lawyer. Um, and I, I didn't really know what that meant because no one in my family was a trial lawyer. Um, I didn't really have any sort of examples. Um, uh, you know, I probably was in elementary school at the time, but I just made that decision that that was what I was going to do. And then from there on out, I think it was just a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. I mean, mm. my family then, you know, in your standard sort of uh, debates or arguments that you have with your parents, um, you know, I tried to correct them or kind of persuade them to let me do whatever I wanted to do. And they would tell me to stop lawyering them. Not that I knew what that meant. Um, mm. <laughs> but then, um, yeah, so that kind of, kind of, uh, propagated it. And then from there on out, I mean, I did opportunities in high school. There were a few opportunities to do uh, moot court or, or mock trial. And so I did those. I did a week-long program at UCLA that they had um, for high school students. Um, and so I had these varying sort of opportunities that reinforced my desire to be a trial lawyer. And mm -hmm. the fact that I, I liked the, the art of debate and I liked the competition part of it too. Um, having played sports my entire life, uh, you know, I had a lot of aspects that I really enjoyed. And then, you know, as I learned more about the opportunities in being a lawyer, because there's just so many ways in which you can practice law, 
or get a, a law degree and not practice law, but you can kind of use that to segue elsewhere. And I just realized that it touched so many different types of industries that even if, you know, I were to change my mind down the road or I wouldn't necessarily want to be, um, you know, a, a, a trial lawyer per se, but I might want to take that and segue that into another industry, you know, there's ways to do that. So I liked that versatility. Um, I think a big part too is, I graduated college in the recession. And so all mm -hmm. of a sudden, you know, you're graduating school, you're not making much money, you're kind of looking for, for your first job. And I saw just how uh, uncertain sometimes the economy can be. And so can you figure out a, a, a job, a career that there will always be an opportunity to, uh, to be able to, you know, provide for yourself and to support yourself. And so you know, graduating in, in that time, I think had a very real impact on being very uh, meticulous about any decisions I made and to ensure that I could always be able to support myself in with in whatever route I took right. um, in pursuing law. Absolutely. I think that's a really interesting origin story. And there's something specific that you said about uh, playing sports all your life that I actually want to um, uh, hone in on a little bit more because I heard recently, um, I think it was Brian Panish who played college football, and he talks about how, um, you know, being coached at a young age um, and being very competitive, like helped him become a successful lawyer that he is. So I was just curious, uh, thinking back about when you played sports, is there anything, um, you know, that you, that you feel similarly or um, how it helped you uh, become a successful lawyer? Sure. I mean, I think every aspect of playing sports uh, translates to uh, professional and personal life. But, you know, I think the learning how to work within a team dynamic and learning about the um, working hard for the benefit of a team um, mm -hmm. and learning how to navigate, you know, the desire to be the best you can be, but that's not necessarily adverse to your teammates being the best that they can be. Um, I think just within the uh, dynamic of, 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 of women and working with a group of women, you know, on the teams I, were, I was on, they were all women. And so working together with other women and just kind of working to support each other and having that camaraderie and it's just so invaluable, I think. Um, you know, I think the discipline that comes with sports, especially playing it up through, well, well whatever level, but for me, playing it up through college and division one mm -hmm. was huge because it really just forced you to prioritize at a younger age, you know, at 18, right. you know, you have to, you're expected to perform at a certain level academically, but also in turn expected to perform a certain level athletically and the demands on your time. Um, you just don't have as much available time and you have to be able to be able to uh, perform in both those areas. So you're very just aware of, of becoming more efficient mm -hmm. as to maximize production um, and, and just the fact that you make that decision to dedicate your time and effort to something and then following that through. And then I think one additional aspect of it that, uh, I think taught me a lot, um, was when you fail, which you often do in sports, right? You, mm -hmm. you don't, you know, you don't make that winning shot. You, um, you know, you don't, your pass, you know, goes out of bounds and then all of a sudden it's a turnover and then they win the game. You have these moments that really require you to learn how to process emotions in this heated setting and, um, and turn them into something productive. And for me, kind of the ultimate 
aspect of that was actually my senior season. I blew out my knee halfway through my senior season. Oh, so I went these three and a half years working so hard, making all these um, sacrifices and, you know, being part of this team. And then I just was out. I, you know, there was no chance of, you know, rehabbing before the end of the season. And I was a captain of my team that time. And all of a sudden I could no longer lead on the field. And so I had to really learn how to adjust. I mean, it was just so depressing but at the same point too my team still had a half a season left and you wanted to ensure that you know morale stayed high and you know they adjusted accordingly and then you know to maximize the remaining of the season and so I actually was like well if I can't lead on the field you know what else can I do so I convinced my coaches to make me an assistant coach which I don't know if that really changed much of you know I was probably outspoken regardless of whether or not I had that title but I think it allowed me to kind of adjust into that role and my teammates were able to adjust with me in that role to kind of become more of a coach than you know a leader on the field and in the middle of the field and just the whole process of that just um utter devastating injury and having to kind of turn that around to make it as best as possible you know I think that comes up a lot in your professional and your personal life and I learned a lot from you know experiences like that. Yeah, I think um, it's really interesting how many parallels are in the the teammate aspect wasn't one I had thought about. Um, but as you were talking, I was thinking that um, it's kind of like similar when you go into the courtroom. Um, it, it's similar to being on the field, on the court, like it's game time. You have to get into the zone. It's very performative in that respect. Um, so I wonder, was there a certain case that you worked on um, that really stuck out as being, um, you know, like really exciting, something that you were really uh, excited to be a part of? Well, it just even the, the part that you're just talking about, about kind of like the pump up that you usually do for games, like, you know, all a team would listen to music. I had my own like uh, play mix. I don't even know if that's the term used anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had like the songs I listened to that I got super, you know, pumped up for for games. I actually found myself actually using that too going into court. <laughs> oh, really? Like, you know, songs I listened to and kind of get in in, in the zone and focus. Um, the yeah. one thing I will slightly kind of the um, one distinction I would draw is, you know, in athletics, you have, you know, the other team is the enemy. <laughs> That's just, you, I'm not working together with the other team for any purpose you know they are on the other side and my our goal is to beat them Mm -hmm. but in the legal field I actually became I had to kind of adjust away from that dynamic you're not always working against the opposing counsel Um, there are times where the court needs you to work together or you need to work together because you need to have the judge you know allow an extension of time for something Mm -hmm. or allowed additional pages or, you know, extenuating circumstances come up that you need something for your client. And so you need to talk to and, and, and be friendly with opposing counsel to effectuate those goals of your client. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think I actually was predisposed to think that there would be clear lines between the parties in, in litigation. And actually yeah. something I learned very early on is, is the ability to be a zealous advocate without being so polarizing that you then burn bridges that your client might need um, throughout the course of litigation. So that was something I actually had to kind of shift a little bit from, you know, my athletics. But in, in, in terms of exciting cases, I think there's, I, it's hard to pinpoint one case because I think 
you know, there's exciting cases because they're exciting to talk to other people about. Um, a lot of my friends and family are, are not in the legal field. So they really could care less about, you know, if I say I'm working on a brief, they, they understand the context. But if I get into the, like the nuances of it, mm-hmm. it you know, their eyes are going to roll back. <laughs> you know, they're just not interested in right. that aspect of things. So exciting cases I've worked on, I think, are when my clients are in industries that I, I find very interesting and industries that, you know, friends and family encounter. So I've worked on, um, on, on cases for clients that are in the food and beverage space. So these brands that you interact with a little bit more like, Hey, yeah, I know I've, I've drank that drink before I've eaten mm-hmm. that food product before. And so it, it's of interest because it's within your realm of what, what's familiar to you. Um, and I, I find that, that interesting and then exciting wise, you know, to be honest, when you're in the beginning of your career, what's really exciting is just whenever you get for, for a trial lawyer, I think whenever you just get into court, and so yeah. it's just, you know, do I have this opportunity of actually arguing this motion in court like that in and of itself is, is very exciting. And then just early on in my career, by nature of working at uh, the county council's office, I actually had the opportunity to get into trial a lot. So I actually was in trial. I think I had between court and jury trials, I had in excess of 20 um, in my first two years of practicing. Oh, wow. And um, they were, you know, more discreet trials and, and didn't, weren't as long, you know, as two to three day trials where with the jury deliberating, but that experience, I mean, that was just, that was exciting. You know, I found that mm. motivating the whole idea of, you know, bringing in a jury and picking a jury and then, you know, doing your opening statements and your closing arguments and, and questioning, cross-examining witnesses and putting the whole case together. Um, particularly when it was just me, I've found a lot of my experiences exciting because they're, um, they're things I haven't been able to do yet. And it's the first time I get to do it. The second time I get to do it, you know, I haven't yet lost that excitement for those moments Mm -hmm. of, you know, when it's actually time to take that deposition or it's time to, uh, you know, go into into court and argue that motion that I've drafted um, or, you know, or go to trial. I think all these instances, I think, are, are probably in turn why I decided to be a trial lawyer anyways, or confirming that I just like that um, oral advocacy part. And I like to actually getting to put together that final presentation. I've found that to be um, exciting and kind of, and the motivating part is that end result that you get to have. And then, you know, sometimes it gets deflated a bit because the, you know, the court rules against you or the jury rules against you. And then sometimes you, you have, they rule in your favor and then that's, hugely vindicating. Um, And so I, you know, I find, you know, all those aspects um, exciting about the, exciting about the practice, not to mention, but I mean, not to overshadow the fact that, you know, there's a lot of the mundane as well in in practicing law and, and, you know, for anyone. I feel like within the legal industry, they do a very good job of like covering up the mundane. Like just in my like personal experiences, like all of it seems like very exciting, like surprisingly. And mm-hmm. you don't really hear about the mundane, um, but like being a young, um, you know, new lawyer, what's it like working with older lawyers who maybe like see you and they're like, oh, and they like talk down to you and they're like condescending and things like that. And then you like blow them out of the water and like, you know, impress them and things like that. What is it like uh, as a young lawyer? Sure. I think in that retelling, you know, in, in the stories that I tell about my experiences, I've, you know, I, I shock people with how great, you know, how um, coherent my oral advocacy skills are, you know, I just, 
um, you know, shock and awe <laughs> or in, in the telling to my family and friends, which probably 90% of the time, it just is not as a, um, not as clear of a result. It's more like, okay, you know, this person knows what, what they're talking about. You know, they prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that, you know, since the very beginning, uh, you know, one example I have is, I think it was my first trial, you know, and I, you know, I did everything, you know, I made sure I had the substance prepared. I had all my outlines together. I was ready to go. I, I thought through the whole process, talked to a bunch of attorneys I worked with, sat in and watched a bunch of these trials. And then I get there. And um, at this part, in this particular county, the judge, after you've been assigned out to a courtroom, the judge then brings you back for a conference in their chambers to kind of just figure out where the case is and if everyone's ready to go. And then, and then you go back out and it's a lot of hurry up and wait. And then they have to go and mm-hmm. grab the jurors. And um, so we're waiting for that process and opposing counsel comes up to me and says, you know, I'm going to actually, I'm going to try to, I'm going to have uh, asked the judge to have all witnesses excluded from the, the courtroom during testimony, which is, it's not unheard of, you know, I've seen that mm-hmm. happen. But then, you know, it was the first time I'd ever been in the, you know, I was, I was first chairing this trial, right? So it was up to me. And it was the first time I was in that position. I had seen this, um, you know, outside of maybe in a textbook, you know, when I was studying in law school. And so, you know, I was thinking about it. I was like, okay, well, I can kind of understand the general motivation behind it, but how does that actually practically play out? And then I realized one of the big issues that I would have to object to is that our client representative was also a witness. And so as a result, that would then in turn mean opposing counsel. And and that in the end, I think was her, the goal (laughs) was that she was trying to exclude from the courtroom, our client representative. Mm. Um, And then I realized, you know, I was sitting there and thinking, okay, well, you know, your client always has a right to be present for their trial absent extenuating circumstances, but I didn't have that rule handy. I didn't know immediately what that was. And so I don't think opposing counsel intended to, but by nature of telling me this, she kind of gave me advance notice so I could do some very quick research to make sure I had this figured out as to, you know, why that's not the case. And so, you know, it's, it's, there's a very real chance that if the, when the, when it was presented to the judge, the judge might've still not ruled in her favor, even if I didn't have that rule handy, but that experience really, well, first of all, opened my eyes to the fact that I had seen her in trial and I knew she had never done this before with more Mm. senior counsel. And so, you know, I realized that was a very real example of, you know, you know, I'm just going to throw the book at her and see what she can, if she can think on her feet and see what I can, I can get to work for my favor for my client. And it really also just reiterated to me the fact that, you know, there's one part of preparing for any hearing or trial, and that is, the substance, right? And that's the thing that people really think about, as you should, right, is what the questions you're going to ask, the evidence that you need to get out there, the arguments you're going to make, but there's a whole nother aspect of it, which is the procedure part. And I think that's oftentimes what um, attorneys sometimes forget to prep in advance. And so that's the last minute kind of researching, figuring out, because you took something for granted, which, and then you had no idea and could not anticipate that opposing counsel was going to throw this curveball at you. So, you know, since then, before every hearing I have or trial, I really try to think through, you know, both that prepare the substantive case, but also think through what I'm taking for granted and, you know, think through scenarios of, of the way in which that might be, uh, you know, opposing counsel might try to throw a wrench in my plans. 
and then prepare mm. for that. And of course, right. you can't prepare for everything and you need to be prepared to, you know, think on your feet. But um, that was one example where I, uh, <laughs> I had my eyes open. Yeah. And since then, I mean, oh man, the amount of times I've, I've been told, you know, definitely by more senior attorneys or just attorneys that have been practicing longer is, you know, they try to say, you know, try to say, you know, something or a certain procedure, like, you know, the party should do this, follow this process. And then I think, well, that doesn't sound familiar. I haven't heard that before. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they think, oh, oh, that's always how I do it. That's, that's always how it's done. You know, you've never had that happen before. And so, you know, despite those kind of uh, mental games and kind of psychology, yeah. you kind of always have to just take a step back and, and think through uh, and not let those things impact the decisions you make. And there's no harm whatsoever in saying, uh, actually kind of reverting and falling back on the fact that you are potentially more junior or you might not be the decision maker in the case and, and say, you know, I gotta, go, I gotta go take that back to the team and discuss, or I have to go take that back to the client and discuss because well, you actually do need to, you know, talk about it with your client as well. So there's definitely uh, a lot of the tricks have been used. <laughs> and then in turn, I've seen, you know, successful ways in which um, attorneys have kind of just um, addressed it and in ways that are perfectly appropriate um, in the setting and actually, you know, um, consistent with our professional obligations. Right. I, th I think that um, it's really interesting uh, to bring it back to the sports analogy again, uh, how these lawyers kind of play dirty and uh, how there's all these mind games. I remember hearing a story from one lawyer about how um, the opposing counsel, uh, one of the lawyers didn't like being touched and he would just like go up to him and like bump into him, you know, multiple times and like throw this guy off. Um, so it's pretty funny to hear um, these sorts of things. And I think it's also inspiring to hear how you deal with it as um, a newer lawyer, um, especially for the young uh, aspiring lawyers that might be listening. Um, yeah, you so. definitely have to choose. I think in some of like in, in one deposition I had, um, you know, each, each person is different. I mean, I've come across attorneys that are just so friendly and, and that's actually how they are consistently. I've come across attorneys that are very friendly because they're trying to effectuate some sort of goal. Um, mm. I've come across attorneys that um, play, you know, are friendly, and then all of a sudden you get into trial or hearing, and then all of a sudden, you know, the most vitriolic statements you've ever heard <laughs> and very choice wow. adjectives, and it's very yeah. heated. Um, and I've gotten, and in everything, even as simple as, as games like that, I had an attorney come in. Um, I was taking a deposition and I don't think they were very pleased that I was able to get, take this deposition. It was an apex witness and we were able to, um, through briefing, the judge ruled in our favor. So we were able to take the deposition of this apex witness. And so we show up for the deposition and I was waiting in the room for them to come in and, you know, they all came in and introduced myself to the witness and I introduced myself to, um, you know, co-counsel and then, uh, the primary counsel who was defending it just would not even look me in the eye or shake my hands. I just had my hand outreach for, you know, 10 seconds or something like that. And so, you know, and, and in that second, I could have either, you know, just put my hand down and not acknowledged it. But, I, you know, I think you just kind of decide how you react to those things. And I just, you know, called his name a few times to bring his, uh, his, uh, yeah. him to attention to the fact that I, well, I knew exactly what he was doing, but 
um, and force them to shake my hand. Yeah, that's pretty, um, that's pretty wild. Um, yeah. So if there is somebody out there, uh, like a young aspiring lawyer who's inspired by our conversation, um, what's the best way to reach out to you or learn more um, online? I think, I mean, everything's available online. So it's, uh, you know, through my profile, um, through the firm and, and, and my email, I think it's, it's, it's on there, but it's rhorton at pulsingonly.com. So, um, or through LinkedIn, um, you know, I'm always, I, I get reached out to on occasion by, um, you know, uh, uh, law students and then people that are newer in their practice. And I, you know, I, I would just always say to newer attorneys is that you don't always have to be networking for a specific purpose that you're looking to get a new job or you're looking to transfer. I think exploratory networking is so beneficial, Absolutely. especially when you're newer because um, and, and younger in the practice, because you just don't have the years of experience that gave you the exposure to other attorneys um, and other practice areas. So through networking with people, regardless of whether they're in your industry or not, just, you know, invariably, I found it very successful as I um, meet attorneys and I find that I have an affinity towards them. You know, I either like the way they practice or I like the way they network or, you know, they've developed an incredible book of business that's very loyal to them. I think any of those things, anytime that you meet someone and they spark your interest, you know, don't be shy to follow up with them. I think everyone is usually pretty happy to, you know, have a 15 to 20 minute, 30 minute conversation and a cup of coffee. And, and not a lot of people mind talking about themselves. <laughs> and it is flattering when people reach out. So, um, you Absolutely. know, I'd always advise yeah. newer attorneys never to hesitate. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, this has been Jacob Wells for Latte with Lawyers. And uh, we really appreciate Rebecca Horton of Polsonielli for joining us today. And uh, I want to thank our sponsor, Emotion Track without a K. Uh, that uses artificial intelligence and mobile app audiences to economically and quickly gather focus group research and data for trials and mediations. So thanks again, Rebecca. Really Thank appreciate you. it. All right. Take care.